All right. Well, it's not officially the beginning of summer. What day does that occur on? Do you know? The 21st of June, but we talked about last week how Memorial Day weekend seems to be the unofficial beginning of summer. So today we leap into our summer series. It's going to be called Gleanings from Genesis. So over the next couple of months, probably about 10 weeks or so, we'll be talking about and applying various stories from the book of Genesis. And it's stories that involve some of the most well-known characters in the Bible. I mean, with stories like Noah or Abraham and Sarah, or Jacob and Abel, or Jacob and Esau, or Cain and Abel, or of even a Joseph. I mean, there's many more characters in the Bible throughout the book of Genesis that you know by name. Then there's also those wonderful stories that these characters are involved in, like the first sin or the first death. There's a big language controversy that occurs in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with the Tower of Babel. There's the ultimate test of faith of Abraham and his son Isaac in Genesis 22. There's always the stories of deception, stealing the blessing, and even wrestling with God written through all the book of Genesis. So yeah, Genesis has a lot to offer. It's going to be our summer series to go through a portion of Genesis because Genesis has so much to offer, there's no way possible we could really adequately cover every story, every character, every situation throughout the book of Genesis in just 10 weeks during the summer. But nonetheless, today we do start the journey and we begin forward. And we begin really at the beginning, meaning the literal very beginning. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's going to be really hard for you to find Genesis chapter 1 in the very beginning of the Bible. The very beginning of the Bible in the first page. We're all going to be the exact same page today. No matter what your Bible may look like, we're all going to be on page 1 today. We're going to turn there. Before we do that, where we have a reading and a message and the application, it is noteworthy, as you may already know, that the word Genesis actually means beginning, which then makes it an appropriate title for the very first book of the Bible. It is the beginning, and it makes it then the right title to have. It is the beginning, though, really, of all creation, the beginning of nothing existed, nothing at all existed until beginning when God spoke it into existence. We're going to read a little bit about that today. The account we read is only two verses in length. It's very, very brief. We don't get into the six days necessarily. We only talk about the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. But it's two controversial verses, if you will. And we'll solve that mystery here in just a moment. So let us do our reading today. It's in Genesis chapter 1. Again, only two verses. But stand with me nonetheless. If you're able to, we can be able to honor the reading of the word by standing together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Father, we come before you, Lord, just reading a small portion of your word, Lord, of your Bible, of the Bible, the love letter you send to us. But we pray, Lord, over these two verses, we pray you'll speak to us, that we'll learn from these verses, but to see how we can apply these two verses, talking about the beginning of everything, how that can apply to us in our day as we understand this text even deeper. So Lord, with that, let's be thankful for what will happen here today, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you'll guide and lead and direct us. It'll be your word, Lord, today, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, in that little bit of introduction, you may remember just a moment ago, I said that verses 1 and 2 that we read, doesn't take very long time to read verse 1 and verse 2, but I mentioned to you that it's often described as controversial. So maybe you're wondering then, well, what makes these verses controversial? I mean, it's the beginning of everything. It's the creation account that leads into even more later. So what makes the creation then controversial? Well, the answer has to do with verse 1 stating God created, and then verse 2 coming right after that, informing us that what God created was without form and void, which according to scholars then means simply chaotic. So they're saying to be without form and void, or as some translations say, to be formless and empty, is equivalent to saying it's chaos. But here's then the thing that makes all that controversial. I mean, if that's not enough, here's where the controversy really begins to sink in. Because it's our central theme. That God is a God of order. He is not a God of confusion. So as that rings true, in turn, in it lays many of these experts and scholars who studied this all the time, most of them even in seminaries, it leads them to explore how a perfect God could create, as described, as a chaotic earth without form and void. So in short, the conclusion among these experts is this, that something happened between the first two verses of Genesis to cause the earth to become desolate and uninhabitable after first being made perfect. And the most common explanation, the terminology associated with that, is something called the gap theory. Yeah, the gap theory. Maybe you've heard those words before as well. But if not, let me explain further. The Apologetics Bible says the creation story has been interpreted in various ways. Some Christians believe a time gap exists between verses 1 and 2, with verse 1 referring to God's initial creative act, and verse 2 describing the world plunged into chaos and darkness, possibly through the expulsion of Satan from heaven. Only later in the chapter does God choose to create human beings, happens to be verse 27. According to the gap theory, listen, millions of years could have passed between verses 1 and verse 2. Now, Arthur Walkington Pink adds to the Apologetics Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the beginning. He created the heaven and the earth. And they reflected the perfections of their maker, that they were exceedingly fair in their pristine beauty. Certainly, the earth, on the morning of its creation, must have been vastly different from its chaotic state as described in verse 2. And the earth was without form and void must refer to a condition of the earth much later than what is before us in a preceding verse. Dr. Chalmers called attention to the fact that the word was, in verse 2, should be translated became, and that between the first two verses of Genesis 1, some terrible catastrophe must have intervened. That this catastrophe may have been connected with the apostasy of Satan seems more than likely. That some catastrophe did occur is certain from Isaiah 45, 18, which expressly declares that the earth was not created in the condition in which Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 views it. Now, there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of opinions being expressed here. Now, if that's the first time you've ever then ever heard a controversy being associated with the very beginning of the creation account, 
particularly Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And the first time you ever heard about the gap theory, you might be surprised to hear about this. Because typically, most people just sit down to read the Bible. They open it up, they turn to the first page, they open it, and they read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. They move quickly on to the rest of the creation account that describes the creation of the first six days. And they give no mind, no attention to anything of any kind of controversy. So somehow this may be rubbing you wrong. Allow me to give you a thought. That over the years of maybe reflecting upon the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 particularly, I really don't think God meant those first two verses of the creation account to be controversial. I mean, as I view it and as I read, I mean, as God instructed Moses to write about the beginning, I believe God was merely wanting a record to be made that in his might, in his power, everything was created. It was all by him. The only true God spoke these things into existence. The almighty, powerful, knowing, sovereign God created everything. And he makes a record of it. God never meant for the beginning of the creation account to be controversial. I'm thinking, well, that's pretty bold. Why would I suggest that? Well, I would suggest that because controversy often leads to confusion. And as our theme states today, God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of order. God is a God of order, not a confusion. That's the theme. So that's why I would suggest the fact that God never meant for the beginning of his creation account to be controversial. He's a God of order, not a confusion. And controversy typically results in some sort of controversy. It results in some kind of confusion. So let's go to the text then back again and look in verse in verses one and two and find our first point, which clearly tells us that God is a God of order. And it is this that God brought order to the universe. As noted in the passage in Genesis, we find, yes, this is the beginning. That God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, verse two tells us that the earth, like we've been talking about, is without form and void. And I even must admit. When studying Hebrew, as I did in seminary, and even going through some things now, studying the Hebrew for this morning, I must admit that the terms formless and void were meant to convey the idea of confusion and disorder. When you study the Hebrew and start digging into it, you find those words just tell us that. I mean, Hebrew word for formless is tohu, which, as you see behind me, means formlessness, confusion. Unreality, emptiness, nothingness. The Hebrew word just tells us what it is. And then the word for void is bohu, which means, again, emptiness or void or waste. Yeah, so it seems that it's not misworded. That formless and void does mean confusion, emptiness, nothingness, void. So it seems then that God created earth, as you read that, understand maybe the Hebrew to be uninhabited, but perhaps only for a brief amount of time. Because just after that, he created plants and animals and man and light and so forth. But before that, it was void of anything. But that observation then, and the theories that associate with that, brings up another observation we must bring to light. And that is the fact that if God had just left things the way they were, in verse 2, then there would be no life. 
if he truly had made it, without wanting the controversy, but if he truly had made it form and void, if he left it that way, then there would have been no life. The psalmist declares in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, what the psalmist basically declares helps support a conclusion that God set the universe in order. That he did so with a particular purpose in mind. It was not by accident. I mean, many people things happen by accident. That the universe just suddenly happened, the Big Bang or whatever, just happened by accident, and there it is. But when you really start digging deeper into the facts, you find that it's not at all by accident. Everything is according to order. Let me share a few things with you that tells us the universe is set up in an orderly manner. I mean, if you've looked upon the universe and as in school on that, and then when was the last time that you ever heard, the news likes to tell us of everything that's going to be bad, when's the last time you ever heard the news telling us that one of the planets have ran into another? It never happened. There are billions of stars in the universe, yet they're all in order. The movement of the planets in our solar system is so precise, scientists can calculate exactly where a planet will be 100 years in advance. Of course, our planet, Earth, rotates on an axis at a tilt of 23 degrees, which scientists say then allows for the greater surface of the Earth to be tilled tillable, and it makes possible the seasons. Also further to show things are in order is that the earth rotates at a thousand miles per hour. It's that if it rotated only a hundred miles per hour, the days and nights would be ten times longer, which then means the summer sun would burn off all the vegetation and the winter's night would be incredibly cold. We think it's hot enough, we think it's cold enough, we don't need to be any more than it is. Which means this then, the earth just happens to be the right distance from the right size sun for life as experienced on earth. Is that a coincidence? No. I mean, if the earth were any further away from the sun, the climate would be too cold. If it were any closer, it would be too hot. If the sun were larger or smaller, we'd either freeze or we would roast and burn up. Bear with me just a little longer to establish everything's in order. Did you know that on the moon, in one lunar day, temperature varies from a high of 214 degrees above zero to 243 degrees below zero? The Earth is the right distance from the right-sized moon for life as we know it. The ratio of the size of the moon to the Earth is 10 times greater than for any other planet satellite in the solar system. If the moon were 100, 100 times smaller, an average size moon, its brightness would be reduced by 20 times and its influence on the Earth would be greatly changed. I'm not done yet. If they can do, just finish. The moon is on average 240,000 miles from Earth. The gravitational pull from the moon causes the ocean tides to cleanse our shorelines and clean out the shipping channels. If the moon were only 50,000 miles rather than 240,000 miles from the Earth, the gravitational pull from the moon would be so great 
that the ocean tides would completely submerge the surface of the earth twice per day. A smaller or larger moon would greatly increase or decrease the tides. A little bit more. The layer of gases that surround the earth also shows a designer and a sense of order. The atmosphere contains 21% oxygen. If it had 50% or more, any flash of lightning would ignite a forest into fire. If we had less than 10% oxygen, we would not have enough for a fire. And perhaps that's enough. We could go on and on and on about data that continues to show that things are set in order, not confusion. Paul declared in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. Now, paraphrasing what Paul is saying, basically, is that God has made himself visible to all through design and order of creation. And the point is that nothing is by accident. Nothing God creates is chaotic. God brought order to the universe. And without God, there would be no order. Which brings us then to a second application that maybe applies to us more personally. Is that God wants to bring order into our society. In the book of Jeremiah, in the fourth chapter, God calls for repentance. God instructed the prophet Jeremiah to preach to the people about what would happen to them unless they repented. This is going to happen, he would say, unless you begin to repent and turn back to God as you should have always in the first place. And particularly our nation society should turn back. I mean, as, as Jeremiah was prophesying to the country Judah before this, the nation of Israel had divided. In 931 B.C., it divided until it became the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom, years later, began to continue to be wicked and rebel against the Lord. So much so that in 722 B.C., they fell to the ruthless Assyrians. But Judah was spared from that. But even though they were spared from the Assyrians, the Babylonians came in later because they continued to disobey disobey, and continue to be their wicked way. So Jeremiah, then the prophet, is called to speak to the country and nation of Judah. And he says to them in chapter 4, verse 23, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens they had no light. Now notice how Jeremiah is using the same expression, the same phrase used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The prophet essentially is telling the people of Judah, the country, that the land they love, the land and the nation would be destroyed and would end up in utter chaos, form and without, without form and void. Chaos, unless they repented. The nation was pushing God out of the picture. And because it was happening, Jeremiah is called to speak to them to try to warn them of the consequences if they continue that path. Let me say that again. The nation, Jeremiah called to speak to the nation and to the people. The Israelites, the country of Israel has already been destroyed and conquered. Judah continued to rebel. And because it continued to rebel, it was pushing God away 
Jeremiah comes in and says, hey, this is what's going to happen if you continue to push God out and tells them then the consequences. If they continue to say they don't need God and rebel and disobey. Does that begin to sound familiar? Because I'm afraid to begin to think about what was happening to Judah and how Jeremiah was called to speak to them and told them it's going to be chaotic without form and void, without God, with him being pushed out. I begin to process it in that mind thinking, oh, that's happening to us. That's happening to our country. Because we're going about pushing God away. Rather than bringing God in and noticing that he establishes the order of all creation, we're just pushing him out and pushing him away. So in Judah, in that particular day, Judah was in the exact same thing, and Jeremiah told him of the consequences. In the fifth chapter of Jeremiah, the six reasons why God was going to judge them. Listen to these and see if they sound familiar. Number one, he said, moral corruption. Are we not living in a selfish society? And people were all about themselves. It was burning for the last night Tom and Penny were recognized and had a banquet given to them to help them with the finances in a situation they've been incurring. We're going to do the same thing today for love offering. But in a selfless society, a selfish society, that doesn't happen that much anymore. It should happen more. That's saying that doesn't happen at all because it does happen. But we live in a very selfish society. And moral corruption is evident. Kids don't have manners like they used to have. I mean, there's more hatred and anger than there used to be. Whenever this started, can you imagine someone back in the day when Jeremiah was writing this, that someone had road rage? I mean, someone getting a chariot in front of another one and chasing them real quick to have road rage because of the chariot pulled in front of them? That's ridiculous. So, yeah, we have more corruption then and now. How about sexual impurity? Yeah, I mean, there's an obvious one that exists today. God provided for them back in that day. They flocked to the temple to have a practice in the fertility God of Baal. And that worship then spilled into their lives. Unbelief, then and now. People then, even today, still did not believe that God would do what he said he was going to do. How many people do you know that does not think that Jesus truly will return? There's unbelief. There's also religious apostasy. God said that they would be destroyed because of the worship of false gods. We have maybe not false gods necessarily, but our society or culture always places something in front of God and worship to him. Social injustice, which simply means the rich were mistreating the poor, taking advantage of them constantly. And of course, corrupt leaders. The leaders of the nation. The kings, the prophets, even the priests were leading people down the wrong path. There's plenty of that happening today. So Jeremiah, the prophet, if he was alive today, he could be preaching the same message to all of us and to our country. And you may already know that our nation, I mean, it seemed like things were going fine until about like the 1960s when things began to really have momentum to push God away. And, and, and the result from that has been devastating. When I was born in 1963, it seemed like it almost reached its peak, not because I was born then, 
I mean, it seemed like it reached its peak in 1963 where people just, from a, just kept pushing God away, kept pushing God away, and there's social indicators that reveal the, 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 the damage. Like, it says there's been an increase in unwed pregnancy. Listen to me. Unwed pregnancy in girls between the ages of 15 and 19 every year since 1963. Isn't that amazing? For girls 10 to 14, that statistic was 15 to 19 for every year. For girls 10 to 14, the rate of unwed pregnancy has increased 553% since 1963. Violent crime surpassed population growth by 794%, causing the United States to become the world's leader in violent crime. I mean, we could go on and find all kinds of statistics about this kind of stuff. But you may be thinking, okay, you said 1963. What happened in 1963 maybe to get this all to change where God was being pushed away? Well, it happened to be. The Supreme Court accepted a case called Stone versus Graham, Kentucky. Where then, a copy of the Ten Commandments was hanging on the hallway of the school. The court said this was a passive display, which is okay. I mean, hanging stuff in the hallway, they could either look at it or not look at it. So it's a passive display. But they added, if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon it, perhaps to even obey the Ten Commandments. And this is not a permissible objective. I mean, what they're saying, if you hear me, what they're saying then is that you can't let kids read the Ten Commandments. Because if they do, they might obey them. And they won't do things like don't steal. Maybe they won't commit murder. Because if they don't have this right, it would be unconstitutional. I mean, you're thinking, that's completely ludicrous thinking. I mean, especially when you consider then, you dig deeper to find the country was built upon the foundation of Ten Commandments. James Madison was the chief architect for the Constitution said that we have staked the whole future of American civilization on the capacity of the people to follow the Ten Commandments. It's completely ridiculous the way things have changed. And we just keep pushing God away. Not we, but God keeps being pushed away over and over and over again. I mean, the fact is our whole system of laws and government are based upon the principles of God's word. So what that means is whenever we try to toss God out of society, well, then chaos and confusion is inevitable. It's just going to happen. If God is a God of order, which we're saying that he is, he's a God of order, not a God of confusion, then when you push him away or tell God you don't need him anymore, then it's just inevitable we're going to have chaos and confusion. But God does not want our society to break into chaos. He doesn't want that for us. And God really wants to bring order to it. And then along with that, God certainly wants to bring order to our lives. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The key phrase, we have peace with God through Jesus. The reason I bring that into the equation here is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus because you cannot have peace 
through chaos and confusion. It just does not go together. When you have disorder, you have chaos, and you have a lot of confusion, you just don't have any peace. It don't go together. But it tells us that we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it says when we give our lives over to Jesus, we then are at peace with God. And really, for that matter, with life. As we turn areas of our life over to God, we will experience peace. And blessings from God. And somehow that don't make sense. Listen to this. Think of how many people are living in chaos and disorder and confusion today because they have ignored God's calling and his son. Think about how many people are living in chaos because they even they wouldn't even take the gospel message to heart. It equates to this truth. That God sent his son to die for us. He does not want us to live in chaos. Jesus will bring peace to our lives. Every person alive has an ultimate purpose and direction. Our lives are not designed to be confused, disordered, and chaotic. Our lives are not... He didn't set for us to become void and formless. I mean, there's a path he gives us, and we need to stick to the path. In Psalm 1611, he says, You make known to me, God, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul adds in Romans 16, he says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Then he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In those verses, Paul is telling the people that because of their love and obedience to the Lord, that God was not going to let Satan wreak havoc in their lives. He was not going to win. He was not going to introduce all that chaos and confusion. You know who loves chaos and confusion? Satan. He loves it. Because when he can introduce chaos and confusion in your life, you won't have any peace, which is what he wants for you. He don't want you to have order and relationship with God because he knows that will bring you peace. And God wants to be in our lives to give us that peace. Again, he is a God of order, not a God of confusion. In removing God from our lives, from our nation, from our world, will result in chaos and disorder and confusion. So what that means then is we prepare to bring an end to all this is that we need to allow God to remove the chaos from our life and from the people we love. We need to pray for his hand to be upon us, to be upon our nation, and to lead and guide and direct us to be the path that he wants us to be on. We need to be led together in unity and prayer, and that should be our prayer today, that we would allow God to lead our country back into being a country of order, not a country of disorder and of confusion and chaos. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the news. I don't have to paint this picture for you. I mean, you've seen it over and over and over again. Just in the last couple of weeks, we had the Texas shooting at the end of school. 
which it was just no one wanted to hear about. But it seems to happen over and over and over again. And I'm not, I'm not an advocate for gun control. Don't get me wrong. But something needs to change. Because what we basically have with this order, confusion, and chaos is these kind of things happening. So I'm not a gun control advocate. I'm, I've got lots of them, okay? But we need peace. We need God. We need order. We had the hospital shooting in Tulsa. The news this morning talked about a shooting in Philadelphia last night. I mean, there's tragic instances of violence everywhere. So it's, over the years, we've witnessed more and more and more violence. Over the years, we've seen more drug and alcohol abuse. Society is just becoming increasingly violent. In years past, other than school shootings, we've had shootings in theaters and malls and even in churches. The family structure is under attack by those who try to redefine God's definition of marriage. I mean, who would ever thought when we were growing up that the government actually stipulate the means to be married and redefine marriage? Marriage has already been defined. God's order tells us the way of marriage. For you and me and people like us who do stand for righteousness, we're called intolerant, prejudiced, narrow-minded, maybe insensitive and uncaring because we believe there is a God and we believe that we can have peace with Jesus. And because we believe that God is a God of order, not a God of confusion. The world is in chaos. If you hear nothing else today, if you've tuned me out, then tune in now. Because it is not God's will that the world, the church, our nation, our personal lives, it's not his will that any of these things are in a position and a state of confusion and chaos. That's not his will. Because God is a God of order, not a God of confusion. But wherever God is not present, there will result chaos and confusion. Imagine what it would be like to the universe if God were to remove his hand from the order he has upon it. Think about how different society would be without God being a part of it. We're beginning to feel that. Think about what would happen to the church if God was not a center of it. Those things we can think about, but here's the one that we really need to reflect upon. How would your life be different without God being a part of it? It would be chaotic. It would be confusing. It would be complete disorder. If God was not part of your life, that's what it's like. And that's what it's like for many people that you may love and you may know. Again, the point today is that God is a God of order, not a God of confusion. For people you may know and love, they may not have peace. They're completely living in disorder. Confused. A world of chaos is with them. Introduce them to Jesus where they can receive the peace and the order that he established for all of us. Father, Lord, we thank you for this simple message today. Short, brief verses today, Lord, we can begin to learn of how you are, not just a creator, but how you sustain order 
in everyday life, of things we just simply take for granted. So let us be thankful today, Lord, that you are a God of order, not a God of confusion. We pray, Lord, today for ourselves, family members, friends, co-workers that may not have that peace that we can receive of Jesus. We pray for our country, we pray for our nation that maybe is now in turmoil in a world of chaos and confusion, certainly of disorder because they pushed God away. We pray, Lord, that you'll allow our leaders, our leaders to turn to you, Lord, to be able to maybe have the revival that we need for this nation to turn back to you, Lord. But let us recognize at the same time revival starts at home. It starts by looking in the mirror. So, Lord, let us reflect upon each of our own lives today and recognize that if we're somehow today we're without peace, then let us turn directly to you today. Lord, to pray that for all of us that may be listening or maybe here today, Lord, if we're without peace, then we'll turn to you today and receive that peace you can provide. Thank you, Lord, for all your blessings. Thank you for this message today that tells us that truth. And thank you for the peace that you provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.